Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Welcome again to Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. And today we're going to be focusing on a very interesting and, uh, shall we say, very absorbing uh, subject, which is relationships and intimacy. And we'd like to just clarify at the beginning that we're, when we talk about relationships, we mean relationships that are of a romantic or sexual nature. Because Jen and I have a relationship, we work together. Jen is a psychotherapist who works with teenagers. I'm a psychiatrist who works with teenagers. We relate together. We have relationships with our partners and our patients. But that is different, really, than what we're talking about today. So it's a very important subject. It's something where parents and teenagers often get stuck. And uh, I have to say that I found it one of the most absorbing subjects in working with teenagers. So many of the kids we see, Jen, come in with a problem around a breakup or a relationship. And it's something that everyone needs a lot of help with. Oh, adults too, (laughs) definitely. And we're going to disclose, I think, a little bit in this particular talk and conversation about our own uh, struggles with this very subject. So let's begin with some of the definitions. And I've already said that in general, the relationships we're talking about are romantic or sexual. But within that frame, there's a whole broad number of of different types. And that means they could be transitory uh, hookup where kids kind of come together sexually for a brief period of time, possibly an introduction to a, a further relationship and intimacy, or they could be in a prolonged sexual relationship over time, or a romantic relationship without sexual aspects to it. Though, as I guess you've realized, if you've listened to us before, we believe that sex is really in everything. So these are some of the things we're going to be talking about uh, in terms of relationships. Uh, How would you define intimacy? I think intimacy is really about, you know, a growing closeness between two people. And I think it applies to, you know, the emotional kind of intimacy in terms of getting close in that way where you feel comfortable sharing things with someone that maybe you wouldn't. You open up about parts of yourself, often things that make you feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. um, and feel the word that comes to mind for me is safe with that person. You have a sense Mm -hmm. that you don't have to be perfect. You can show them that, you know, there are parts of you maybe that you aren't so proud of and you still feel like they respect you and that you are not judged for sharing that information. I think you bring up a key point that many Many people do not feel safe in in their relationships, their romantic relationships, and they don't feel that they can share these intimate parts of themselves. And intimacy is something that we're working toward in relationships. And we, I think, test out our partners and see how safe do they make us feel. We tell them little bits. And if we feel safe, then we go a little bit further with it. Um, We're also going to be talking today about fantasies and sexual fantasies and romantic fantasies play a big part in relationships because they kind of give us clues, I think, to really the direction we might want to go. Definitely. 
And then, you know, we can't really, I think, talk about intimacy without talking about, well, there's also physical intimacy, which is the part that people get a little bit more squeamish, I think, talking about. But really, that's kind of the sexual interactions in some level. But also, it's the holding hands. It's the kissing. It's Mm -hmm. the, you know, just wanting to be hugged by somebody. That's also intimacy. And it's also a sexual intimacy. You know, it doesn't have to be you know, oral, anal, or uh, vaginal intercourse to be intimacy. There's really other aspects to it. Um, I think it's very important to say, too, that for many teens, um, the sexual part, maybe in the form of hookups, Mm -hmm. comes before the emotional intimacy. Often. uh, Often. And just to really think about that and for all the parents out there and I'll talk a little bit more later on about being a parent of teenagers I think to be aware of that that you might hear about that from your teenager and how do you handle that when you might have a judgment that the emotional intimacy should come first and then the physical and then the other aspect that is important to consider is the virtual intimacy Mm -hmm. that there's now an online world and there might be a virtual intimacy, which is different from these other aspects of it. Yeah, I think that's a huge component too. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think we'll get to that kind of later today in talking about what relationships look like now. But certainly it's an important thing for parents and teens to be aware of. Yeah. Um, One of the things we have to at least define right away is this whole area of hookups. And you're from a younger generation, Jen. So how would you describe the hookups of today? I mean, hookups have existed since I was a teenager in the 60s. You know, they weren't called hookups, but it was definitely, you know, sex play and sexual activity. It was sometimes called the bases, you know, running Mm -hmm. the bases. And Mm -hmm. it was a sexual experimentation that took place in drive-ins and movie theaters theaters and all kinds of places, mostly parents' basements. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think it's changed that much in, in that sense, right? In terms of kind of the exploration component of it and in terms of where it happens, you know, parties, maybe the movie theater in the dark, you know, mm-hmm. um, at, at your house in the basement mm-hmm. or in your room. But I think one thing that I've found is that even though I am of a younger generation, like I'm still not of the generation of teens. And so for me, the word hookups is a word that's kind of always changing. Maybe we don't even Mm -hmm. use the word Mm -hmm. hookups. But I find actually that when it comes to that aspect, I need to ask the teen what they mean when they're using that word. Because Mm -hmm. it's just not, I don't feel that there really is one definition for Mm -hmm. it. It's really kind of a general pattern Um, But to ask very specifically, like, oh, okay, so you said you hooked up with this boy or you hooked up with this girl. What does that mean? Yeah. And I think here's a good time for us to advise both teens and parents when they have a friend or someone else talking about a hookup is they need to ask questions. Yeah. And it's okay to say, oh, what kind of hookup was that? Or who hooked up with who? Mm -hmm. I often think for parents, it's easier to ask about your child's 
friends in their yes. relationships much, much easier than it is to ask directly about what their relationships are. And I think that's more comfortable for teens as well. So in a way, being able to build up to that conversation, you're setting kind of the foundation for being able to have those more intimate conversations with you and your kid. Right. And you bring up the very important point that the definition is actually changing. Hookups is part of what I would call the sexual lingo yeah. that is constantly evolving. Yeah. And in order to be hip and be hot, really, things have to change generation to generation, even within a generation and within cultures. So hookups are part of that, uh, the lingo edge for all yes. of us. So um, it's something I think to be aware of and to not feel left out of, but to know there's some of the old parts in it, but some new stuff too. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this many times, but really it's about bridging those worlds. And part of it is understanding that teens want to redefine things for themselves because they want something separate from their parents' generation. And even though they may be going through, you know, similar patterns, they're going to put their spin on it. Yeah. This brings us back to the subject of risk-taking and uh, teens and adults engage in new activities of the sort you're talking about in yeah. intimacy and relationships or new activities mm -hmm. where you take on challenging opportunities and sometimes you fail. They don't work the way you might want them to. Yeah. And sometimes they go a lot better. So the idea that risk-taking is an important part of it and that relationships and intimacy are a necessary part of life to make yourself a full person. And that's a challenge, I think, for teenagers and uh, for us as adults. Yeah. And I think I'd go even as far as to say like that risk-taking is a crucial component because I don't think you can really have intimacy without the risk-taking. It's That's part of what builds the intimacy is that you take this risk and then you realize, wow, okay, like I'm, I'm safe here. Mm-hmm. No, it's a very important part, not only of relationships and of life, but of our kind of our core identity, the way we develop ourselves, we take risk and we push our own identity a little bit further. And so I think it's really, really important in this area. We were going to talk a little bit about our cases this morning because I think you can't talk about relationships without talking about real people. And maybe you'd like to start and talk a little bit about one of the boys you've been working with. Sure. So um, I guess let's call this boy John just so that I have a name to use. But so John is a teen that I'm working with and he's about 16, I would say. And so... The thing with John is that he's very happy in his relationship and he's been with his girlfriend since he was 14, I believe it was. So two years. So that's pretty long for a teen relationship. And he recognizes that he's happy, but he also feels this pressure to go out with other girls and to sort of be that cool guy who, you know, has all the girls' numbers and... um I think it's been interesting working with him because he's very aware about the fact that he likes where he is. He's happy with his girlfriend, but he also feels somehow like he's missing out. And I think that's something that a lot of people worry about when they are in a more long-term relationship at a young age is that, well, what if this isn't the one? Am I wasting my time? And I think those are a lot of the questions that we explore. 
What kind of things does John bring up with you that he thinks he's missing out of? You know, how does that show up in the work with them? Sure, definitely. I mean, we talk about hookup culture. You know, he goes to a party and he sees his friends leaving with other girls or they're going into different rooms or, you know, and he is happy with his girlfriend. And so he doesn't really want to be doing that, but he feels like he needs to be. Like it's part of what he's supposed to do as a teen boy. And I think that's what we talk a lot about is like, well, I feel like, you know, the movies are telling me I should do this. I feel like these songs are telling me that I need to be like hooking up with all these girls and that, you know, I'm not masculine because I am, he doesn't use the word whipped. I can't remember the word he used, but you know, essentially that, that um, metaphor of the ball and chain, you know, Mm -hmm. like he's trapped with his girlfriend. And even though he's talked about, I recognize, like I am happier than a lot of my friends and Mm -hmm. he's very self-aware. So as I said, he recognizes that being with his girlfriend has actually helped him take more risks because Mm -hmm. he feels comfortable and he knows he has her support. But there's this huge part of his guy friends make fun of him. You know, his guy friends sometimes will say, well, in the beginning, it's getting better, but that was something we were working on. They wouldn't invite him to go out anymore because it was like, well, you know, you have a girlfriend, so you're not going to want to hang out with us. And they're just playing basketball, you know? So I think there's a lot of pressure about what boys are supposed to do, and he feels that pressure. Yeah. Um, in the book Sex Lives, I wrote about how boys are supposed to be the sexperts. Yeah. And they feel like they have to know all of this about relationships. They have to know the rules already, even though it's their first relationship. And the other aspect of this, I think it's even harder for boys than for girls to kind of turn down the peer group and say, look, I'm happy. I don't have to hook up Right. with 10 girls this year. I'm not in that club anymore. And I'm happy with the girl I'm with or, you know, the partner I am with. And uh, that's a challenge, I think, for boys to really do that. Because the myth is that boys are supposed to like being out there on the prowl. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes them, as you put it, masculine or a man or a boy. Yeah, And uh, how we work you know, in this area, as therapist is important. But I think parents struggle with this all the time. They see their their teen boys evolve into a person who's mm-hmm. got to be in this role. And it's a hard role for boys. Yeah. And that actually brings up, I was just remembering, I think I mentioned that I'm seeing him, but I'm not actually mm-hmm. seeing him right now. He's an old client. Um, but the role that his father played in it too you know his dad was thinking kind of along the lines of well he's young he should be out there he shouldn't be tied to this girlfriend and so the Mm -hmm. fact that even his father kind of had this idea and he really looks up to his father i think Mm -hmm. that's very conflicting for him too Mm -hmm. and you know to be 14 and thinking these things to be 16 and Mm -hmm. thinking these things they're not easy things to wrestle with and so i think Mm we teens do in some ways look to their pat their parents for patterns and sometimes you know it's i want to be exactly like mom and dad sometimes it's i don't want to be anything like mom Mm -hmm. and dad but it's certainly one of the first role models that they have of a relationship well you bring up how much adults role model for teenagers and There's a lot of research uh, on both sides, that the parents are the role models and that the peer group is the role models. But um, parents' role model attitudes, Mm -hmm. and if they, as, you know, John's or your other client's father is asking, 
questions or has expectations, then that son is really going to feel that. Yes. And I think parental expectations and what parents do in terms of their own romantic and sexual relationships matters a lot. About 50% of the parents that we work with are divorced or separated. Yeah. So many times they're dating, you know, or they're in varied relationships when their teenagers are doing the same thing. And it's a, it's a very, I, I think, confusing time for these families. Yeah. I mean, relationships affect everybody. Yeah. And I think for parents to be aware that they role model you know, relationships for their kids. And, you know, sometimes they're in a good one and they say, I'm, I'm happy. I'm in a good relationship either with your father or, or you know, right. your mother or some other partner. Uh, or they can say, I'm in a challenging relationship and these are the problems with it, just briefly, right. you know, and um, this should not be the role model that you seek out. And I think uh, that's hard to say sometimes to kids. Yeah. Yeah. One of the girls I've been working with or work with a number of years ago, because she too was an old client. And just to say, um, you know, it's otherwise it's going to sound like we're really sharing our clients' stories that we have permission either to do this or they're disguised. And we're doing everything we can to really protect, you know, our own patients. Oh, and absolutely. we're really doing this to share things that are, I think, important for everybody. This particular client was uh, named Heather, and uh, she found herself fainting kind of sporadically, particularly in math class. And she came in to see us uh, or see me at, in pediatrics because they were worried about the fainting. But then it evolved that she was having other feelings. When she and I sat together, we could see this. And it turned out that she was often having sexual fantasies prior to the fainting episodes and the way she knew that she was having some strong feelings for a partner, in this case a boy, but um, was that she would then faint and then have some dreams related to him. Uh And uh, I think in today's hookup world, hearing about this kind of antiquated situation where the girl's actually fainting and has these very strong uh, fantasies is, is different. But it's important to say that even the teenagers today, all of those out there rapping about all types of sex, they're having fantasies too. And fantasies play a huge part in sexual relationships. Yeah, I think actually that's often where they start when it comes to the relationship component. It's the crushes, it's the fantasies, mm-hmm. it's the ideas of what you want to do with somebody else. And I think that's a whole brand new thing for a lot of these teens and i could Mm -hmm. see that you know in our society that with the pressure on girls i mean the fainting probably isn't as common but the whole concept of i should not be having these feelings almost not being able Mm -hmm. to own your feelings is what it sounds like was going on with her yes you know you're very right about that jennifer because this particular girl came from a a somewhat uh a religious background Mm -hmm. that restricted a teenage sexual relationships greatly and um, she I think did not feel permission even to have these feelings and uh, I myself was raised uh, you know traditional French Canadian heritage Catholic and uh, that background you know has some restriction in the sexual area at least at the time that I was raised probably not so much anymore 
But uh, again, how do you transition to having sexual feelings when your larger culture really doesn't uh, allow them to take place? You know, and it's a little bit of the opposite of the boys we were talking about who are expected to be sexperts, whereas these girls are expected to not have sexual feelings. Mm -hmm. And really all kids have some sort of sexual feeling, and it's neither the sexpert or the non-existent. It's somewhere in between. Yeah, and to be able to have an actual understanding or conversation or even to be able to have the internal conversation, the self-awareness to be able to kind of look at your fantasies that's a lot of the work that I do with teens is kind of helping them explore their fantasies because you know in relationships you're thinking about well how do I want this to look what do I think my boyfriend should do what do I think a girlfriend should do what should I do as the boyfriend or girlfriend and you know I think that that's a huge component that people don't necessarily look at it's almost glossed over that's just somehow supposed to all fall into place but really it's something that's co-constructed right and this you bring up a a term that a lot of our I think our audience may not be familiar with Mm. but we construct our our own identity and we also work with others to co-construct what I would call a relational identity or really a relationship. Yeah. Um, so we're putting bits and pieces of ourself into that. Um, to go on with this idea of fantasies, I, I think fantasies are discounted really in today's world. But they're a huge part of relationships. And I, I've learned so much from you. You always talk about the shoulds, mm-hmm. um, that kids have these should expectation. A relationship should go this way. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think you've essentially hit it on the head there. But really, it's that idea that even before someone's engaging in a relationship, they're already building ideas about their future relationships. And so, I mean, we see it even just with friendships, right? But when it comes to a relationship, it's, well, you know, you can ask somebody, even though they're not in a current relationship, you can ask, you know, I've asked my clients, well, you know, what it is, what is it that you think, you know, if you were to be with this guy, what do you think he should do in this situation? And they already have a long list of like, well, he should do this, he should do that. And, you know, he should be nice to her. He shouldn't, he should walk her to class. He should, you know, buy her gifts or, you know, she should make sure that, you know, she's waiting outside the door for him. These are just little examples of things I've heard like of kids about how you should be at school, but, you know, they should hold hands if they're dating or maybe they shouldn't hold hands. And there's just a lot of the shoulds, I think the beliefs that are there before you're even engaged in a relationship. And the the question is, where do these shoulds come from? I think some come from our culture at large, you know, some from parents. We were talking about this girl named Heather a little Mm -hmm. bit earlier, and her parents and her religion Mm -hmm. put a lot of shoulds on her. Mm -hmm. And it was hard for her to know her own mind when there were so many shoulds intruding. And um, one of the things I think you learn about relationships over time is you want to hold back judge some judgment, not be too judgmental. That goes for parents and also 
you know, for kids. But uh, it's a hard thing to learn to kind of let the shoulds be on the side over there and then say, well, my my boyfriend or girlfriend is really this kind of person. They're not the way the shoulds should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think also, in a way, sometimes the shoulds are helpful, but you need to know that they're there, mm-hmm. right? When they're just there operating in the background without your knowledge, then you're kind of going along this course without understanding that you're moving in that direction. But if you look at it and you go, oh, I I think I should do that, and sort of asking yourself, well, why? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something teens are very good at, is asking, you know, why this, why that? And to kind of turn that on themselves a little bit in a gentle way. But, you know, what makes me think that? Where is this coming from? And do I want to do that? Right, and you're really encouraging teens to ask questions yes you know about uh their feelings their thoughts their sexuality and not just kind of act on it but to think about it in in a more really defined process which is so important this brings us into the whole area of what is sometimes called basic values in relationships and uh we're going to talk a little bit about what those are um I think they're not talked about very often, but I think most people would agree on some basic values. And we've talked about it together earlier. And um, the couples, the couple of ideas we've come up with are that respect is a basic value in relationship, respect for each other, and having a partner who respects you. Um, safety is important, and that's both physical and emotional safety. And you were talking about emotional safety earlier, where you feel like you can tell some secret and not easy things about yourself to the person. But physical safety, a non-abusive relationship, where they're not physically or sexually or emotionally abusing you is really, really key. And uh, I think people would be surprised, but recent studies have shown that teens are involved in relationships with high levels of abuse between about 40 and 70%. Um, so it's not something that we automatically learn, you know, and it's something we've got to practice and be aware of and have other people kind of report it and check it out for us. So those things are really, really important. And then the third thing that we spoke about this morning earlier is um, before this tape is the idea of happiness. And do you know your own happiness? Do you feel in a relationship that you are unhappy? And maybe you're keeping yourself and the other person in the relationship for other reasons. You're afraid to leave. You're afraid to tell them how you feel all of those things. But your own happiness, it it grows. I think your awareness of what your own happiness is, but it's important to be aware of and be responsive to your own inner feelings. Yeah, I mean, that is so crucial. And I think in a way, when we're talking about it here, it sounds like it's so easy, right? Because it's so easy to just say, oh, yeah, of course, I want a respectful relationship. Of course, I want a safe relationship. But how to actually go about crafting that? How Mm -hmm. to recognize the warning signs? What are the warning signs? I think a big part of why there's so much violence or as you were using the word abuse kind of in teen relationships is because it often kind of is more of a slippery slope than it is just out the gate, you know, and 
that makes it hard because then there's the attachments and there's the ideas around, you know, we didn't even bring up this concept yet, but the ideas around what love is mm -hmm. and, you know, how that is used and how it is misused. And I think the emotional abuse is the hardest for people to recognize because mm -hmm. you it's just so hard to wrap your head around it, especially when you've never seen it before. And I see that in my relationship work with adults. And so, you know, somebody who's like 14, 15, 16, all, all the teen years, when you don't have something to compare it to, when people aren't talking about it, when they aren't helping you learn to recognize, you know, we use the word reciprocity. What does that actually look like? How does that actually function in a relationship? And I think so to be able to kind of break apart some of these things, and that's a lot of the work that I do with teens is kind of saying, okay, well, you know, maybe let's talk about your friend instead of you. That feels more comfortable. What's going on between your friend? What would you tell her to do in this situation? What do you think about how her boyfriend is treating, mm -hmm. treating her? You know, and then, then you're able to talk about, oh, well, I don't feel that he's very respectful. Okay, well, what makes you say that? And by talking about other relationships, they can learn to kind of turn that on themselves and say, okay, well, hmm, I don't feel respected by this guy. You know, and I think that plays into hookup culture too, is I have teens who maybe in the beginning were very into hookup culture, but now they want a relationship and they don't know how to make that transition. Yeah, the role you're taking on... Uh, you're you're very able, really, to talk with teens about relationships. But I think parents, although they're they're not therapists, have to venture forth a bit into this area, especially the area of safety and uh, uh, looking at it. And uh, as you were talking, Jennifer, I was thinking about the whole area of guilt mm -hmm. and emotional abuse is often guilt. Yes, and it's using a power over technique and really uh, intimate techniques and knowledge of the other person to achieve a power over them and to make them act in a specific way. And um, it's hard to recognize. Often people spend hours, years in our offices as therapists trying to define how they've guilted others or they've been guilted. And uh, I think it's a very difficult area to recognize when you're starting out. So I think for teens, they have to rely on um, maybe how they do feel in a relationship deep down, um, the questions that they ask. It's important to always be questioning it, mm -hmm. you know, and thinking about it. And many of us do that with relationships. I think also to be aware of the fact that if a teen has been guilted, by a parent or other significant caretaker, you know, they're vulnerable to reenacting that in their own relationship. So the idea that we reenact, mm -hmm. you know, what has happened to us early on is important. Mm -hmm. And often we'll say, you know, I don't want to be a guilter like one of my parents. So, but then we end up you know, being guilted in our relationships. So to be aware of that, to really ask, what is that? How do I avoid doing it? And how do I avoid having it done to me? Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe sharing a little bit, definitely that resonates so strongly with me and kind of the role that I played in my family. I very much was mm -hmm. a caretaker, mm -hmm. giving kind of person. 
And I think that I saw that in my parents and I saw kind of the good component of it. And I was like, I, I like that. I want to be like that. The hard thing was I didn't have an understanding of the boundary of that. And so being taken advantage of for that and kind of getting wrapped up in, in that aspect where it was no longer a power balance. It was really about me just taking care of this person. And it was very one directional and I was very unhappy. And it took a long time for me to extract myself from that because I didn't have a lot of this guidance and the tools that we are talking about of being able to recognize that that was a pattern I was enacting, that I was feeling guilty, that I was feeling responsible and that that wasn't really my burden to bear. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard in relationships to have relationships that have balance, equal balance between the two partners. And um, particularly um, when you're young, it's hard to understand what that involves. In long-term relationships, the balance can go back and forth. Yes. One person can get sick and need a lot of caretaking or be depressed, or have a major loss, mm -hmm. and then the other person provides the caretaking at that time. But when there's a, a permanent imbalance in one direction with caretaking, you can really feel trapped, and you can feel guilted, you yeah. know, responsible for the other person in a way that you're really not. And what you're describing, I think many of the young people and the adults I work with are in that type of relationship. Yeah, I mean, what this brings to mind is that I actually had a client and they felt trapped in their relationship and they couldn't get out because the other person kept saying, well, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to remember how old they were. I want to say like 15. And they didn't know what to do. And so they knew they were unhappy. They knew this was not a healthy relationship because we had worked on that. But at the same time, they, I mean, understandably, how would you know how to navigate that? You feel you're responsible for a whole other person's life, and they're telling you that you are. You know, I feel like that's not too uncommon. And this is a really good example of the guilting process we were talking about. Exactly. That's um, why it know. came up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think many teens um, are in this situation. Um, some adults, but many teens, and uh, breakups are one of the hardest things, I think, for teens to engage in. You feel them strongly when you're broken up with or if you're the person engaged in doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so what should this young person do? Um, I think that raises a lot of good questions. Whenever suicide is threatened by a teenager or an adult, I think it's a, an important point to listen. Yeah. Uh, years ago, they used to think, oh, it's not a, it's just a threat. Mm -hmm. But if someone is bringing it up, I think it's important to be concerned about. Yeah. Also, in my mind, it brings up, should they be in a relationship if they're at the point where the relationship brings them to threatening suicide? So for all the teens listening out there and all the adults, I wonder about that. Yeah. They obviously need therapy. They need mm -hmm. help to not threaten, and probably it's good to move them in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, it's also important to let other people know. If it's a teenager, you could talk to your school counselor. You could talk to your parents if they're available. You could talk to friends, mm -hmm. and you could try to get a, a take on what to do about it. But it's not something that anyone 
should have to really bear alone that type of responsibility. And that's exactly kind of what happened is, you know, we talked about, well, is there anybody you can talk to about this? Is there, you know, some adult who could help you in this situation? And they ended up talking to their school counselor and the counselor stepped in and kind of helped sort that out. But certainly, I mean, I think it takes a lot to even reach out. You just feel so overwhelmed. And that was kind of what was presented in my office was just, I I don't know what to do. I'm so panicked. You know, I just, Mm -hmm. I can't. And so kind of helping them take that breather and say, okay, let's figure this out. I'm glad you're taking this seriously, you know. So let's take this seriously. What does that mean? Who can you talk to? What are your options? And sort of helping them get out of that panic mode. Because I think that happens a lot in relationships too, is people get panicked and then they just make these split decisions without being able to kind of risk assess. Mm -hmm. One of the other areas we're talking about really dangers in relationships. And one of the other areas that we frequently face as therapists, and I think teens face in their relationships, is that a partner or a teenager will become engaged in some area of substance abuse or self-harm. And suicide threats or self-harm. Yeah. But substance abuse also is. And how to really work through that. Many parents, and myself included, have found out that uh, the partner of their child has been engaged in substance abuse activity. And how do you work with that? How do you really help your teenager to look at that? Um, How do you provide education, you know, about substances? Um, Substances change the nature of a relationship. They move the balance point. And uh, again, we're really involved with something that we've got to ask a lot of questions about, we've got to get help with, we've got to think about. Um, But this is an area, the substance abuse area, and that includes alcohol, all types of of drugs that are used both legal and illegal. And uh, it's really a a big area of concern because it impacts greatly on relationships. And I think it's a hard one because in some ways, for some teens at least, there's the mentality, excuse me, there's the mentality of, you know, drug use being experimental. And if that's kind of the framework in which you're working with, then it can be hard to recognize at what point does it move from being experimental to being an unhealthy pattern. And if you're you've accepted, let's say, your partner as using drugs experimentally, and then they start moving into an unhealthy pattern, you may feel trapped because you don't know how to extract yourself from that situation. And um, to be honest here, that was a situation that I found myself in was, you know, there was some experimental drug use going on, and I was okay with that. It was very, very infrequent. And then uh, my boyfriend started hanging out with a group that was just constantly doing drugs. And I very much was, you know, busy at school, busy doing other things. And in a way, I knew our relationship was falling apart, but I didn't, one, know how to do it, was partly in denial about it, and just felt very trapped. And it dragged on and on until I finally kind of sat down with a really good friend who was like, look, this is affecting you and your health and you're unhappy and you know these things and this cannot continue. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with her help and support, I was able to kind of 
cut that off, helped get him to rehab. It was this whole big thing that I know I could not have done without my support networks. Yum. And you bring up how often teenagers and other young people are in that position. Oh, where yeah. they've got to be the one to move somebody along to treatment, whether it's it's rehab or psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned parents, too. I think parents, if you find uh, that um, your child's partner is uh, using substances and your child is in the caretaker role, it's important to raise those questions, you know, to partner with your child to help them mm-hmm. uh, so that your child is not alone and trying to help that other person and to really be there for them because it's an area where children can really be pulled into caretaking roles very strongly. Um, This is a, a really important area I think that we work with. It also leads us into the area of uh, balance in relationships where you're in a relationship where somebody might be engaged in other activities, either illegal activities or possibly, you know, abusive activities that really move in a in a very strong direction. And relationships, by their very nature, need to be two people that are really capable of being in a relationship or not are embroiled in other activities that are so disturbing. And I think this is the thing. We all have periods of, of disturbance in our lives. But if you're involved with somebody who's really engaged in these other activities, they need to be focused on getting themselves help in that area and not necessarily on the relationship with you. And I think that's so hard for people to see. Um, They want to be the therapist. Right. You know, and they want to move into that role. They think they can do it. They don't want to desert the other person, that kind of thing. And that's actually exactly what I was about to bring up is I think Mm -hmm. you have to look at a big reason why do people stay in that situation. And I think there is also an aspect of, you know, I can be the one to fix them. I can be the one Mm -hmm. to make this difference. And I think there's also, you know, again, it's kind of those shoulds. Like, I think people believe, and we've been sold by society in a way, that relationships are hard work. And so if you just work hard enough, then, you know, then it will work. And so I think a lot of people feel like failures when their relationship isn't working. And so they may think, I need to work harder. And in a way, I mean, that's not to say relationships aren't work, but it's, different when you have something like substance abuse or verbal or physical or emotional abuse going on, then that's almost a whole other arena. And you have to look at the different rules that are kind of in play there. Yeah. No, you really outlined the major concerns, I think, the basic values in relationships. Uh, And you mentioned the important word happiness. And happiness is a growing sense. Our awareness of what makes us happy grows and changes. You know, again, we're constantly reconstructing that. But I think an awareness that if we feel unhappy constantly in a relationship, that there are aspects of it that are not working and we really need to question it. Uh, Because I think many of the young people I work with stay in relationships uh, because of that hard work factor, yes. even though they know they're unhappy and they know that they're going to have to break up with the other young person. 
And it's very important, I think, you don't do yourself or that other person any favors by staying in a relationship in a very unhappy way. And uh, so I think learning how to say your feelings, listen to the other person's feelings, and uh, then to tell them that you are going to end the relationship from your side, or at least modify it, that it's going to lose certain aspects. That's such an important thing. We're going to talk about breakups in another conversation, but it's important to really say that that's a key part of being in a relationship, is willing to listen to your own happiness and then take that into your own hands. I think one of the things that I've learned kind of over the years, too, is how to balance your own happiness with the other person's, right? As a more caretaking type person, I very quickly would kind of place that other person's happiness as my happiness. And those are not the same. And that was not a healthy pattern. And that's something, excuse me, I don't know what's going on with my throat, but... We're recording this in San Francisco, and for everyone listening out there, San Francisco has a lot of allergies and a lot of fog that pushes them down, yeah. so we cope with this I think here. that's what's going on. I apologize, but um, as I was saying, you know, I think it's one of those things where there are certain things you don't necessarily know about yourself until you are in a relationship, and I think being able to at least have had some discussions about the frameworks, about the possibilities, then you can start to see when that's happening. Whereas I learned kind of the hard way, which is I didn't have these conversations. And so I wasn't, (coughs) again, sorry, I wasn't able to have that framework in which to understand what was happening for me and what was going on. And that definitely prolonged things. So being able to understand, you know, I've not been in a relationship maybe as a teen right now, but okay, I can still think about how I interact with other people. Do I tend to take care of other people? Or do I tend to be very like mean to other people, right? You have to look at the whole spectrum of things. And I think... Being able to kind of be kinder to yourself in that way, too. If you see yourself as doing something that you're not that proud of, you know, you can work on it and you can change that. Yeah. Jennifer, you bring up a a really another key point, which is that we have to look to our earlier relationships in life. Yeah. You know, and parents can look at how's their kid uh, interacting even in preschool or elementary school with other kids. Do they have friends? Do they respect their friends? You know, is it a balanced situation? Mm -hmm. This is a very important area to work on in helping your child develop, maybe the key area. Mm -hmm. And what's the relationship like with you and your child? And uh, it's very important that parents don't let themselves be abused by their own children. Yes. Because that role models very unhealthy behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to move on and talk about the issues uh, related to relationships today for teens. And uh, why don't we take a break just for a moment? Okay, we're going to be continue talking about relationships as they are today for teenagers. And uh, this uh, brings up for me, and you asked me to say a little bit about it, teen relationships have changed over time. And I was a teenager in the 60s. 
and particularly the type of relationships that teens had then was somewhat different. There was often a split between the good kids and the bad kids, and the good girls never had overt sexual activity, and hookups took place, as I mentioned, in drive-ins and other places, but uh, often uh, a sexual hookup would not lead into a relationship, and there might be parallel relationships. You'd have friends that you had uh, sexual activity with, and uh, you'd have uh, friends that you had a romantic relationship with that was somewhat considered to be pure. And uh, I think it's an interesting division that took place then. Um, it's evolved and changed. Uh, I lived through uh, the the culture of the 70s, too, in college and medical school, and that was a very uh, sexually free period. Um, the pill had just come into uh uh, the modern market. It was available for anyone over 18, especially in college settings. And so the 70s and the early 80s were periods with a lot of sexual activity uh, for young people. And then uh, AIDS uh, made its way onto the scene in the 80s. And there again, change occurred. And the sexual activity of teenagers evolved in different directions. And here is where I think oral sex entered, you know, the arena. And oral sex had always been prevalent earlier. I, I have to say even back in the 60s and the 50s, but it was often girls giving oral sex to boys. Um, very low rates of girls receiving oral sex at that point in time. But uh, in the 80s and the 90s, there was more back and forth oral sex. Uh, there was evolution of sexual activity. There was misunderstanding about AIDS and how it could be communicated, because it can be communicated orally too in rare situations, but it's important to state that. So uh, that did change things, and that moves us right into where we are today in the after the millennium, and we're evolving through this hookup culture period. So uh, to you, Jennifer, on the history, you're in the thick of this. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think a big thing that I've noticed is that one, you talked about oral sex and how that's changed. I see it treated as much more casual than before. You know, I mean, for me, I think I was still maybe on the tail end of it being more of a significant event. And it was a very intimate thing to have somebody be all up in your face like that. Whereas now it's almost seen as I think when we talked about this before, you use the word like currency. It's almost treated like a currency. And I think that's been a really big shift. Is that something that you've seen as well? Yes, definitely. And, um, you know, for uh, all relationships, whether they're, they're gay, straight, trans, um, all of them will use oral sex in this way. And I think that's shown in the research, but also the teens that we work with, there's a different feeling about it. And you see it in the virtual world, which we've talked about in our discussions here, but um, the virtual world will ask for oral sex, kind of oral virtual sex. And it's interesting how it's changed. Uh, I think there was always a thought that Bill Clinton's activity impacted on the American oral sex world. Um, I think it did some, especially his idea that it wasn't sex, that it was casual. Yes. Uh, but it was already moving in that direction. 
that oral sex was becoming kind of a, a currency, maybe equivalent to kissing, maybe even less intimate than kissing. And I think that's the thing is, you know, for me, that is the impression that I get from a lot of the mm -hmm. kids is that it's certainly less intimate than like vaginal intercourse, but even then kissing. And it's just mm -hmm. so different than sort of how I was raised and the ideas that I had, right? And it's not good or bad. It's just interesting to see how it's kind of shifted in their minds. The other thing to talk about with oral sex is the gender imbalance here. And in, in straight relationships, uh, that's boy-girl relationships, um, uh, it's often the girls giving the boy oral sex. And if you look at the rates, you know, they vary study by study, but uh, girls on average can be anywhere from 60 to 80% are giving oral sex as teenagers. And then with boys, it's not that high, and it, it probably is closer to 20 to 30. And just the difference there, a lot of the girls I work with describe uh, really pressure to give oral sex to boys even before they've developed a relationship. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of hookup culture, actually, is sometimes you're not engaging in vaginal intercourse, but instead you're, you know, giving somebody a blowjob. Mm -hmm. And that's just seen as like a very casual, well, like I liked him, so then I gave him a blowjob and he wanted me to. And then, you know, asking about, okay, well, you know, how about reciprocity? You know, mm -hmm. did he also um, perform oral sex on you? And often the response is either just a like, no, no way, or it might even be kind of like a disgust. Is that mm -hmm. something that you've experienced? That's something I see pretty frequently. Yeah, and this, uh, the disgust, I think we need to talk about that, why girls are disgusted with the idea that a boy would perform oral sex on them. I, I think it's a, it partly comes from the culture. It's discussed with female sexuality, yes. you know, and boys not wanting to do that. There's a lot of negative terms applied to this. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think, for parents to be aware of that, for other teens to really be aware of that. I think also we have to look at how um, girls sexually pleasure themselves, just period, and how restrictive that is and how few girls really have had sexual orgasm or have masturbated to orgasm as teenagers. Right. And that's such a, a huge There's such problem. an imbalance. Yeah, yeah. that you're going to, and just to say directly, I mean, here, I don't think we have good statistics, but my own estimates over decades of work in the field are that maybe, you know, between 15 and 25% of girls have been able to achieve orgasm through masturbation. Um, as a teenager, but it's a very small group. And that may happen only a few times or maybe only once. And then for boys, um, you know, it's almost a rite of passage mm -hmm. that boys will masturbate to orgasm as teens. Yeah. And uh, they can do it in groups. Um, they can do it at parties. Uh, they talk about it mm -hmm. more frequently. Girls will rarely discuss it. You know, so I think that's another important area to be aware of. And then you brings up the whole area of a boy or, or partner, yeah. you know, a, a girl giving oral sex to a girl. And it's a very complex area because they're like, well, I haven't even managed this. I don't want somebody else doing this. And uh, there is, uh, you know, I would say lack of knowledge really about it. Yes. 
Lack of conversation. Yes. How to talk about that. How to talk about the big differences. Um, I think it's very hard to talk about somebody else having oral sex with you and sexually pleasuring you when you've not been able to do it for yourself. Yeah. You have so little knowledge about it that you're really not in a position to converse easily about it. And this is going to be the subject of another conversation oh, about totally. how we think uh, <laughs> girls should be educated about their sexuality and about orgasm. But it makes oral sex a really a very difficult area to engage in, especially when it's the currency of the hookup culture. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something I think uh, hookup culture is part of the culture today. Uh, the virtual uh, relationship culture. And we've talked separately about that, but that's also a big part of it. People have virtual relationships. They have virtual girlfriends, virtual boyfriends. Uh, for the gay trans world, um, the virtual culture, you know, has provided opportunities to meet other kids who yeah. have some of the same feelings. And so I think that's been one very positive aspect of the virtual world for kids. It's created, I think, more safe places for that in a way. Yeah. Uh, I've worked with one girl who really didn't know anyone else who had some of the same feelings. Uh, uh, she believed she was a trans and mm. about ready to undergo a process and mm -hmm. um, really questioned, uh, you know, her own sexual identity in her high school. Yeah. And she had no other friends uh, that were going through this. And online, you know, she met, you know, friends um, she also uh, contacted the group Lyric, which provides a lot of source resources and information. And so all of these things uh, are there available for kids. So there's the other resources that you might find online if you're not sharing the experience of others in your high school. And I think that's very, very important. Yeah. I think, you know, that brings us back kind of to some of the trends that are going on today and what relationships look like. And a big part of it, I think, is I've seen sort of the order in which things happen has sort of been flipped, where because hookup culture is so frequent, you know, a lot of kids are kind of engaging in this hookup, more sexual intimacy type relationship before engaging in a romantically intimate relationship. And I think even making that transition has been hard. But in a way, a lot of the relationships that the kids that I work with, when they are with somebody and you ask them, well, how did you and your boyfriend, girlfriend meet? They'll say, well, first we started hooking up and then we decided we liked each other. And so then we decided to maybe exclusively hook up. Mm -hmm. And then once, you know, we decided, well, we didn't just want to exclusively hook up. We also wanted to like hang out and go to the movies with each other or, you know, do things that weren't related to some sort of physically intimate activity all the mm -hmm. time when we were together. Then they decide, okay, well, maybe we should be in a relationship. And you bring up a, really a major shift. Um, that is front-loaded kind of the sexual activity. I think, uh, Jennifer, there were always, I'd say, a smaller number of kids right. who used sexual, uh, sexuality and sexual behavior to make the intimate connection. And I think there are actually many adult couples who are still using, you know, the sexual behavior is the major part of their intimacy. It's not uh, uh, an emotional or conversant intimacy. 
So it's a really different kind of thing, but we see a lot of it today. And it's the introduction is really the hookup. And a lot of middle schoolers will come in to me and say, I've been asked, you know, to engage in hookups online and face-to-face. And it's really very, very challenging for kids today. How do you work with that? And should you engage? And, you know, you might, as a parent, face that question from a seventh grader. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that is very unexpected for a lot of parents is that one thing I've noticed in working with teens and parents is that teens are very aware of what's going on in their schools because they're in that environment. But a lot of parents don't seem to understand that these sexual matters are happening in middle school and that they're things that, you know, um, their children, whether directly or indirectly, mm-hmm. are faced with. And hookups can happen in the middle school bathrooms. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm just trying to give parents some frame for this because it's hard. They can happen on the, you know, the playground after school. Um, they can happen in the house in many constant, many areas of the house. And they can happen a lot at parties and other mm. settings. So there's many, many settings that they can take place. And a lot of parents say, I'm going to restrict it and I'm going to set up rules. But it's hard to rule out everything in a kid's life. So you've got the conversations to help you, but you really have a lot of trouble preventing this from happening. You're not you're gonna send them to school and if they're right. hooking up in right. the bathroom, and, right. you know, that's something you've got to really talk to them about. You cannot know otherwise that this is happening. Yeah. So I think again it's back to the conversation and it's also about kind of letting your child feel safe talking to you about those things. Because one thing I see is, you know, understandably that feels very overwhelming for a parent to hear. And I think that depending on how you respond, your children are very attuned to that. And so they may say, oh, mom didn't handle that well. I'm not going to talk to her about this in the future. Right. And a lot of kids will say, you know, mom or dad is hooking up too. Right. You know, and they're not available. They're not doing very well with their relationship. So I'm not going to fill them in or worry them about mine. Mm -hmm. So I think this brings up role modeling for adults and parents to be aware of that and the models that we set up and pattern for our kids. How much do we talk to our kids about our own dating experiences? You know, we want to always, I think, be conscious of the relationship that we're the parent and we're providing information and guidance for these kids. That's the priority. They're not our confidants right. for dating and other things like that. Right. So all of these are are things that a lot of families are dealing with is how to make this transition. Maybe to move us along and then, uh, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about sexual activity though we'll then uh, have a separate discussion about that. Um, again, I think with sexual activity, we've already gone through how respect is important to have in it and the safety issues are important. Sexual activity is a type of risk-taking. Yeah. Even the hookups have risk involved, risk of uh, you know sexually transmitted diseases or involved in even oral sexual activity and to be aware of that as a teen, that it's not a no-risk activity, even though I think it's thought that to be that way. And I think to bring into there that it's actually very high emotional risk for a lot of people. It's not easy to constantly engage in these sort of physically intimate relationships without forming attachments because it is a form of intimacy. And if that's not what somebody wants, then you risk really kind of getting hurt in that process. 
Exactly. And it brings us back to the course of these relationships. Often there's a brief period of hookup activity, then a period with greater divine definition of uh, psychological intimacy and emotional intimacy. And then the course is to break up or evolution to friendship. Looking back on things, uh, you know, I've looked back now on my teen relationships decades later, and I think it's important to remember and to think about, you will stay uh, acquainted with and sometimes friends with these people over decades. So you want respect and safety and caution and all of those things to be part of it and uh, how we uh, help our relationships evolve into different things. And ideally, these people are uh, people we think fondly of. They're people that we uh, really learned a lot with and from. And uh, our relationships are one of our greatest teachers, I think, for life, uh, maybe the greatest um, so we learned so much. And I look back, I'm still friends. I was joking with you from about an, with a number of boyfriends from high school and college and later in life. It's a wonderful thing to have those friendships. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jennifer. This has been a fun subject, I think, to talk about today. Anything else you'd like to add about relationships? We've said it a lot. <laughs> I mean, I think we've covered a lot. I'm sure you and I could just talk endlessly about relationships and intimacy. But certainly, I think we've hit a lot of the important points. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. Take care. Come on. Let's talk about sex. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art, and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.